0: The text for the sermon this morning is found in Psalm 56. (laughs) Psalm 56, we're going to read the entire psalm together. For the director of music to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks, of David, a miktam, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long, they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, eager to take my life. On no account, let them escape. In your anger, O God, bring down the nations. Record my lament, list my tears on your scroll, are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help, by this I will know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? I am under vows to you, O God, I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Then, after the sermon, we'll sing together in response the first two stanzas of this psalm, Psalm 56, the stanzas one and two. beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, many people have their favorite psalm. It can be a psalm that's encouraged them. It can be a psalm that's comforted them at a specific time in their life. Or it can simply be a psalm that that really points out the majesty of God and it leaves a deep impression on a person. When you look through the Psalter, you'll see that there's a huge variety of psalms. And each of them conveys a different emotion. Some convey praise. Some rejoicing or thanksgiving. Others impress the majesty of God and leave you with a feeling of awe. And yet there's still others that, that are a plea for help in a difficult time. And that's one of the reasons that people value the psalms so much. The psalms give words to our emotions they help us to express just how we are feeling in different times even when words for us are so hard to come by at the same time it's also fair to say that there are certain psalms that are far more well known than others psalm 56 it's not an unfamiliar psalm but it's not the most popular psalm either It has certain phrases and certain verses that are very common. You can think of the tears in the bottle. Or perhaps there are some people that know Psalm 56 simply because we sing it to the same tune as Lord's Day 1, Hymn 64 in our Book of Praise. But as we're going to see this morning, just standing by itself, Psalm 56 is a very rich psalm for God's people. It identifies a struggle that is common to every person. It's that struggle between fear and trust. There are times in our lives we experience a tremendous amount of fear. We don't know what to expect. We don't think that the outcome of a situation is going to be good for us in any way whatsoever, and we don't really know what to do about the situation. Fear can be a very crippling thing. And when we're afraid, we can often make decisions that make a situation even worse, simply because we panic. We don't know what to do. But we're also not living in fear for our entire life. There are also times where we have that sense of peace. We trust that in some way, God is using all situations in our lives Also, in this world around us, and then we trust in Him to act on our behalf, and we know that He will. Psalm 56 it shows just how close fear and trust really are. And so this morning I bring you God's word with this theme: When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And we'll see two things. First, we'll see the reason for being afraid. And secondly, we'll look at the reason to trust. As you note from the little script above the actual psalm, Psalm 56 is one of those psalms from which we know the historical context in which it was written. That's what we read about in 1 Samuel 21. David had fled to Gath as he was fleeing from Saul. But things didn't go well there for David because at some point, the Philistines had seized him and they had arrested him. Well, we have to wonder, why why would David flee to Gath of all places? After all, if there was ever a place in that entire world that David would not be welcome, it would be Gath of the Philistines. Yes, certainly the Philistines were the mortal enemy of the Israelites at that time. But it wasn't that long ago either that... There's a significant event that took place in the history of Israel. It's the event we find in 1 Samuel 17. All the children here probably know that event as well. David kills Goliath the giant. Well, Goliath was from Gath. Goliath was their hometown hero. And David had killed him. So what made David think that the Philistines would simply welcome him with open arms in their city? Well, scripture never gives us the reason David went to Gath, nor does it give us a judgment on David's actions. It simply tells us that when David went to Gath, the Philistines seized him there, and they likely held him under house arrest while they decided what to do with him. And as we know from 1 Samuel 21, David pretended to be a madman, and so Achish wanted nothing to do with David. And at that point, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Well, it was sometime during this event that David wrote Psalm 56. We don't know when exactly, but he put his emotions into words, expressing exactly how he felt during this entire ordeal. When David was seized in Gath, he knew that his life was in danger. This was no small matter at all, beloved congregation. David had slain the champion of Gath. David was the pride and joy of all Israel. He was the one about whom the Israelites sang their songs of victory. This was now the perfect opportunity for the Philistines to take revenge on their enemy. But we also have to remember that it wasn't just the Philistines that wanted to kill David. His own king wanted to as well. Saul had made it perfectly clear that he wanted David out of the picture entirely. There was no place at all that David was really safe. He was a fugitive, constantly on the run. And now he was in the hands of his enemies. And all these things combined are exactly what we find in Psalm 56. If you look at verses one and two of that psalm, it reminds us of those ways that Saul continually was going after David. Two times in these verses, David says that he's being pursued or he's being hotly pursued. And literally the word that he uses both times can mean to pant after. His enemies are ruthless in their pursuit. They don't ever stop And it's something that happens continually all day long as David says. He is continually running, running, running because he knows that if Saul were to catch him, his life, humanly speaking, would be over. And the same thing is also true of the Philistines and their constant attacks. We find that described a little more in the verses five and six of our psalm. And again, there's an emphasis on the continuity of their attack. It happens all day long. And what do they do? The Philistines are continually twisting his words, giving everyone else a negative perspective about David. They continually attack his reputation. But they go further. Verse 6 says that they conspire against him stirring up trouble for him wherever he would go. And they're constantly watching him. They're lurking in the shadows, spying on him. And they're waiting for that one moment when they can attack him and put an end to him. Wherever David turns, he stands on the brink of death. And then because of this, because of all these circumstances in his life, David is afraid. We find that in verse 3 of Psalm 56. Yes, that verse, it gives the response of David to his fear. But there is a straightforward confession there that David is afraid. And that's not a confession we can overlook either. Because he doesn't try to hide his fear from anyone. Instead, he puts it out there in the open for everyone to see. David who is he in our eyes? When we think of David, who do you think of? He's the man after God's own heart. He was the one who was anointed to be the king over Israel. David was the man who slayed, who killed Goliath. He was the man who killed the lion. When we think of David, we have this great heroic picture. Well, that hero, he's afraid. And the reason he is afraid is that he knows that standing by himself, there is no hope. There are too many enemies attacking him. There are too many factors working against him. He doesn't have the strength in and of himself to be victorious. And what we see here in David congregation is actually the natural human state. Fear. Fear. It's something that entered the world with the fall into sin. After Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit they were commanded not to, God came to them. And he asked Adam, where are you? And Adam's response in Genesis 3 verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Sin had caused that separation between God and man So that man was now afraid of the God with whom he had walked in the garden. Well, Of course, it's one thing to be afraid of God because of sin. But as we see from David in Psalm 56, part of being human is that we also live in fear of other people. The fall into sin affected the relationships between people. And not just people in the church and people outside of the church but also it affected relationships within the covenant community itself. Think of David and Saul. What David describes is that blind hatred that man can have towards one another. He shows the harm that people are capable of committing against others. And seeing all this, it causes fear. It causes a feeling of powerlessness. And when we look around us in our modern culture, isn't it true that we so often fear as well? More and more we are surrounded by people who want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with the church. If you read articles online and also the comments associated with those articles, then you'll see that there would be more, there are so many people that simply want the end of all religion. They'd be more than happy to see it cast from the face of this earth. And they argue that religious people, and especially Christians, religious people are holding back the progress of society. Christians are people who are stuck in their ways, they're intolerant of others, and they promote hatred toward other people. And that Bible to which Christians hold, it's a book that's outdated. It has nothing to do with the ideals of today's society. Blind hatred toward God and his people is more and more the norm in our world. And we're constantly under attack from those around us. And behind all those attacks, we also have the attacks of our sworn enemies, the devil, this world, and our own flesh— who are continually trying to sway us from the service of the Lord, leading us into sin. We are hounded on every side. And when we recognize how many our enemies are, and when we recognize the strength of our enemies compared to how weak we are individually, then we too are afraid. We fear because no matter how hard we try, we can never do better in our daily struggles. We fear because we don't know what the future of this world holds. We don't know what the future of our own country is. We don't know how long we're gonna have the freedom to worship. And we fear and we're troubled because we do know that the day of judgment is coming And then the thought of appearing before the judge of all peoples is something that is terrifying for us. And something else that fear does is it gives a sense of being alone. For David, when he wrote this psalm, he was not surrounded by his group of followers at the time, he didn't have his family there to support him. David was all by himself. And the truth is that we too feel that same way. Even when we are surrounded by our family, even when we have the communion of saints all around us, we still feel distant from them. It appears that no one can identify with our troubles or our struggles, and we feel that we have to face all these different things on our own. The congregation, our psalm this morning, clearly shows that this isn't the case. Because we are never alone. And we see that in David's response. Because in the midst of his fear, he doesn't try to overcome things by his own strength. He looks to God. He seeks his help. Look at how he starts Psalm 56 in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. He's surrounded and attacked. And he seeks the help of the Almighty One. He knows that in order to drive away that fear, you need something that is stronger than fear. And the Bible tells us exactly what it is. 1 John 4, verse 18, perfect love drives out fear. Well, of course, we don't have perfect love. We don't have perfect love for each other. We don't have perfect love for God. But God does have Perfect love for his people. And it's on the basis of that love that we too can cry out to him when we are afraid. When we face the attacks of our modern culture, when we face the attacks of all our sworn enemies, don't look deeper inside yourself. Look to the one who loved you so much that he gave up his only son for you. Look to your Savior. Who offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins because he loved you so much? And know that in all circumstances of your life, he is able to sympathize with you. Living here on this world, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way, just as we are. If you look at all those sufferings that David points out in Psalm 56, is there a single one that our Savior never faced? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were continually taking his words, twisting them, trying to give Christ a negative reputation among the others, trying to trap him in what he said. And how often weren't those same people trying to put Christ to death? If anyone knew what it was like to be surrounded by enemies, it was Jesus Christ. And he, tr- he too could be troubled by things just before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in Matthew 26, verse 37, that our Savior began to be sorrowful and troubled. He knows what it's like to face all these different fears and anxieties. And he shows us from his example what we are to do in these times. And that is pray. Bring your pleas before the Lord. Ask him to give you the strength that you need and find that strength from the one who is sympathetic to your weakness. And it sounds, like, it sounds like too simple of a response, something that's far too easy. But as David says in Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. By looking to your Lord and Savior, you have every reason to trust going forward. For as we see in Psalm 56, while David is very open about this fear that he faces, it's also clear from the Psalm that he doesn't just languish in his fear and let it dwell in him. Instead, he says in verses three and four, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And he says something very similar also in verses 10 and 11. There's no doubt about it, congregation. Fear is a crippling thing. But the cure for fear is not looking deeper inside yourself. Certainly those heroes that the world has. They're men and women who in the face of all adversity, they looked inside themselves and they found the courage and strength to face their problems. That's the hero of the world. But the only real cure for fear is faith. It's perfect love that drives out fear, but it's faith. By which, we cling to that, by which we cling and claim that perfect love of God. It's focusing on who God is. It's focusing on what God has promised. And then it's viewing all opposition in contrast to God. And when David does this, he confesses with confidence, I will not be afraid. And in the face of all his circumstances, this is a stunning confession of faith. And it's based really on two things that he describes. First, it's based on who God is. The almighty Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. And then in comparison, who are all these enemies, really? They're mortal men. Men who can do a tremendous amount of harm for him, yes. But they are men who can only do as much as God will allow them to. God's still in control, even when all those enemies are surrounding us. And the second reason for David's basis, even with all those enemies surrounding him, he had God's word and God's promises. God had promised David that he was going to be king over Israel, And David had complete confidence that God would bring that promise and make it the reality. The Lord does not make promises and then simply forget about them or ignore them, He carries them through. And it's through faith in God's word, it's faith in God's character. That's how David found certainty in the midst of his fear. And then it's on that basis that he makes some beautiful claims about what God does for him in the midst of his struggles. We find those claims in verses 7 and 8, perhaps the more popular part of this psalm. In verse 7, he prays for God to bring down the nations in anger. And here the word nations is better translated as peoples, as in all those peoples that were continually surrounding him and attacking him. Well when we hear a prayer like that, for God to destroy the peoples in his anger, it's something that's uncomfortable to our modern ears. Something something doesn't sit well about such a request. But we have to remember that this is not a prayer of David that's being made in anger. It's a prayer that's based on God's own promises. God had promised David he would be king. God had promised all his people that he would protect them in their time of need. And it's on the basis of these promises that David cries for the defeat of all those around him who attack him. Not so that he can be avenged, but so that God's plan can continue to move forward. And those beautiful things that God will do continue in verse eight. David prays that God will record my lament, actually record my wanderings. For as a fugitive from Saul, David was at a stage of his life, he no longer had anywhere that he could settle down. He no longer had a permanent home. He was at a time where his home was the wilderness, wandering around, finding refuge in a foreign nation for a short time. And yet he could know that in the midst of all these wanderings, the Lord would never forsake him. Instead, God would record them all. But not only his wanderings did God count. He also took note of all those tears that David shed in his fear. And those tears, God kept them in his bottle, as the text literally says. He recorded them on his scroll as well. It's a very vivid and a very powerful image that David uses here. All those tears that he shed, even those tears that nobody saw, God kept a record of them. He held them in his bottle. He recorded all David's hardships. It's this response to fear. David's not only looking at the all-powerful God He's also looking at God as the merciful God, the one who cares for his people and who watches over them in all their circumstances. And then he says in verse 9, then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By placing his firm reliance and trust on the Lord, by seeking his help, by seeking his strength, all those enemies that were surrounding him, pursuing him and attacking him, seeking to kill him, they would turn back and David would be safe. And when we step back and we look at all these things that David claims, all we can say about them is that they are gifts of God's amazing grace. But David doesn't end there either because he continues in verse nine with another confession of faith. If you look at it in the NIV, it says, By this I will know that God is for me. The way it's translated here, it makes it sound like all those things that he's just said, they are proof that God is on the side of David. And while that may be true, it probably is true, that's actually not quite what the original text says here. A more accurate translation would be, this I know that God is for me. In other words, there's no proof that is even required to know and believe this. The fact that God is on the side of each one of his children, it's something that we can simply believe and accept in faith. It doesn't even require any proof. Yes, God proves it to be true time and again also in our lives but the fact that we believe it should not only be based on that proof. Because if that's the case, what happens when God in his sovereign wisdom allows his children to undergo a time of adversity? Do we then say that God might not be on our side? That's a very tempting response to such situations. But the reality is, whatever our circumstances, God is always on the side of his people. Even if we can't see it at the time, we can't see how he's working in that situation, it's a confession that we can always make, God is for me. There's some very familiar language here. Perhaps you've recognized it. Because the Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 8, where in verse 31 he asks, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on your side, who can be against you? And then he puts everything into perspective as well. In the following verses, he says that God has already given up his only son, the greatest gift that he had to offer, so that through him, you may have life. And since he's gone that far already, what is there that God would hold back? What is there that could ever come between God and his people? The only possible answer to that question is nothing. There's no person and there's no force in all creation because we belong to Jesus Christ who has purchased us with his own blood. And yes, in this life of sorrows, we together with all God's people will face constant attacks, attacks that drive us to fear time and again. But in those times, we can confess the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. We can lift our hearts on high and remember those rich promises that God made to David and those promises that still apply for us today. Promises that for those who look to Christ in faith, there is a future in store that surpasses everything that we have here on this world. Because all those rich claims that David made in verses seven and eight, through Christ, they actually become even better for us. Not only does God record our wanderings, instead he promises us and he gives us an eternal inheritance. And God doesn't only collect our tears in his bottle, but he promises us that a day is coming when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And not only shall our enemies be turned back, only so they can retreat, go lick their wounds and then try again later on, He promises us that all our enemies will be destroyed forever. Not only some of our enemies, all of them. Everyone who persecutes the church, everyone who wars against God in this life and opposes him, Satan himself, sin, death, all those enemies that we have, they'll be gone and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Well, that confession of faith in verses 10 and 11, it would have been a perfect place for David to end that psalm. But instead, he actually continues with a kind of surprise ending in verses 12 and 13. He says there, I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And there's a significant change in the language that he's using here because no longer does he speak as one who's under constant attack. Instead, he talks as someone who's been delivered from his attacks, someone who's no longer fighting against his enemies. And that's led some people to say that David composed these last verses later after God had delivered him and then he added them to this psalm. Well, it's certainly possible But there's another explanation as well. And it ties in with the whole attitude that David's described here in Psalm 56. Confidence. By his words, David has expressed complete confidence in the Lord. He showed enough confidence that he is absolutely certain that whatever his circumstances, God will deliver him. And then he says that because God is going to do this, then he will make thank offerings in response. Now we don't know what kind of thank offerings these would be. Perhaps it would be a fellowship offering that we can can find described in Leviticus 3. It's a voluntary act of worship. Perhaps David had vowed to give something else to the Lord. We don't know for sure. But the actual practice here is not the point. Instead, there's the principle that we have to see. God is going to deliver David from death and he will respond in thankfulness. Well, as those who have been saved, not from physical death here on earth, but as those who have been saved from eternal death through Jesus Christ, how much more does that principle now apply to us? If David responded in that way when he received deliverance from his enemies here on earth and he received longer life here on earth, how much more does that principle apply for us who have been saved from all enemies and who have received the promise of eternal life in fellowship with Christ? When you think about it in that way, the reality is we can never thank God enough in this life. As the psalmist asks in Psalm 116, verse 12, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? We can't. But he does tell us how to start. If you want to show love and thankfulness for God, live in faith and obedience before him. Serve him with every part of your life. Call on his name with thanksgiving and tell him just how thankful you are that he has saved you. For what is there that you would ever hold back? And what is there that you would not do knowing that through Christ you have been saved? It is finished. And in Christ, your name is now written in the book of life. Brothers and sisters, through faith in Christ, we have nothing to fear. Having been united with Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from him. We belong to him, body and soul, both in life and death. He preserves us. He cares for us. And then makes us heartily willing from now on to live for him. That's our confession. And with that confession in our heart and with that confession on our lips, we will not fear. Instead, we will live in the light of life that God has given us. Amen. Let's now sing together in response Psalm 56, the stanzas one and two.